Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 15, A Revelation. My guest, Stephanie Nakajima, discusses her personal experiences with healthcare systems in the United States, Japan, and Denmark. Ms. Nakajima is the Director of Communications at Healthcare Now, which advocates for the United States to implement a single-payer healthcare system. She previously worked as a writer, editor, and journalist in Tokyo and covered the Fukushima nuclear disaster and organized crime. She has also worked for the Danish Institute for Human Rights and the Danish Refugee Council in Copenhagen. Ms. Nakajima joins us today to speak as a healthcare consumer and how much easier it was for her to obtain quality medical care in Japan and Denmark. Stephanie Nakajima, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Hi, Joe. Happy to be here. Good. So, what I'd like to start, I know you spent some time in some other countries and experienced their healthcare system. Could you mm-hmm. explain how you ended up in those countries and what your experience was with those healthcare systems and how they compared with the United States? Yeah, sure. So I graduated from college um, practically right into the recession and for years worked in the service industry, uh, you know, mostly waiting tables, making minimum or sub-minimum wage, and of course, not having health insurance. I probably couldn't have afforded comprehensive health insurance anyway on my salary, but it wasn't an option since I was rejected for everything but catastrophic coverage because I had a pre-existing asthma. And over those years, I lived in a crappy apartment with mold and my asthma, especially without access to you know a primary care physician, just got worse and worse. I did end up in the ER once, something that could have easily been avoided with medication. And sometimes people see that as sort of the climax of the story. Oh, another avoidable ER visit that would have been less costly if we had just been treating these people with preventative care. The worst part of those years for me uh, was the constant like chronic wheezing, which got worse when I tried to exercise, the coughing fits, you know, living day to day with untreated asthma, psychologically, the strain of living my life like that, not having a fundamental need taken care of really decreased the level of control I felt like I had over my life. And it was very disempowering, actually. And the thing is, I thought it was normal or, you know, it really decreased my quality of life, but I didn't realize it. And I didn't realize that it didn't have to be that way until I actually did get treatment. And that's sort of where my international story begins. So around 2010, I moved to Japan, my dad's country. And while I was registering my residency at City Hall, they asked, you know, do you need health insurance? As if it were something they were just giving out. (laughs) And it turns out that they were. And in fact, any resident of Japan can get on the public health insurance plan just by enrolling. You know, there's no application asking for your detailed medical history or wondering if you've made a small mistake somewhere in your insurance application where it could be rescinded. There's nothing like that. You know, they don't care what gender or age or whatever you are. 
And just like that, for the first time in my adult life, I had real comprehensive health insurance and it was so easy. And having that guarantee of being able to go to a doctor whenever, that was a revelation to me. And I realized then um, that I had been wronged in the United States, that I had a right to health care and that it was denied. And, you know, it made me angry. Just a quick comment. Somebody said in other countries, they're not known as pre-existing conditions. They're known as medical conditions. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, pre-existing condition was just something we created to keep people out of the healthcare system, basically. So you were in Japan and you experienced a good healthcare system. Yeah. And then what happened from Japan? Well, a year after that, uh, the Fukushima disaster happened and anti-nuclear protests were springing up all over Japan. And in the midst of this national tragedy, you know, uh, there was this huge anger about uh, what had happened with the electrical power plants. And that sort of inspired me. And, you know, a couple of months later, Occupy Wall Street made its debut. And that's when I decided it was time to return to the States and really get in the game. But U.S. immigration laws were hard. I was just married to a Dane that I had met in Tokyo, and we were applying for his green card. But that ended up taking three years, and that can be a whole other podcast on immigrating to the United States. So most of that time we spent in Copenhagen. And during my time in Copenhagen, I got to experience a true single-payer healthcare system. And what was that like? Yeah, so Denmark has a true single-payer healthcare system. There's absolutely no copays. I think I paid a copay when I went to the dentist. Um, so dental care is one area for improvement for Denmark. But otherwise, no copays for any general specialist hospital care. I never feared going to the doctor because I knew that when I left the bill, no matter you know what test they did or what additional visit they recommended, it would always be zero. And that was a huge thing that prevented me from going to the doctor while I was in the United States. I would have, you would have no idea, even while you were in the doctor's office, even when you were asking the doctor, okay, you're recommending I do this, but you can't even tell me how much it's going to be. You know, so there's just this uncertainty that, you know, really prevented me from accessing care when I was in the United States. And that was totally taken away when I was in Denmark. Another amazing thing about my experience there was that I had totally free choice of GP or what do you call it, primary care provider and specialist. In fact, when I went to my GP to be referred to a specialist for an issue I was having, we didn't talk about, you know, which one was a network or whatever. He just spoke candidly with me about, you know, which ones he'd recommend and which ones he wouldn't, which ones were close to my house and all this. Um, I have a very restricted network here with my current insurance plan. And I feel like there's really a big difference um, between a totally open network and what we have here, which is, you know, a restricted network, which actually impedes my ability to get care because there are only so many specialists who, you know, take my insurance. What you describe is actually a patient-centric system. And obviously, that's much better and provides better service. Obviously, I assume you were being treated for your asthma. If you are willing to share, were there other things that you went to the doctor for? Other health problems that came up? I did have other additional issues, um, although I think that they were rather routine. I did actually, though, see my friend Anne, who was diagnosed with leukemia. She was just a couple of years older than I. 
And I got to see sort of the system jump into place around a very sick patient. And I got to see how a coordinated level of care that could only take place in a single payer that, you know, revolves around what's actually good for the patient and not how we can maximize profit from a customer. I got to see that experience. And I think that was one of the things that really solidified for me how valuable a single payer is versus a profit-driven system. Well, if the system's so good, how come you came back to the U.S.? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, I had decided that I wasn't going to come back to the U.S. unless I was, you know, actively fighting the system because it became very personal for me after I realized how much I had been deprived during those years where I couldn't go to a GP. And so I was offered a job at Healthcare Now, which is, you know, the patient advocacy organization for a single payer. And I kind of jumped at the opportunity. And fortunately, with my insurance now, I have a zero deductible plan, which is great. But sneaky co-pays and, you know, the, the restricted network are... The decision, if I could make it, would be totally clear. I would absolutely have single payer in Denmark over what I have right now, any day. I know women's health issues are important to you. So how do you compare what's happening with women's health in Denmark as compared to what's happening here? So right now, we're seeing, you know, this recent spate of attacks on abortion happening at the state level right now, you know, in Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, that's really angered and terrified a lot of people who are rightly afraid of the future of Roe versus Wade, since that's what, you know, these laws are really about. They're trying to take down the Supreme Court ruling that made abortion legal. And there's kind of good news and bad news about this moment. I think the good news is that, you know, experts don't believe that these extreme bans are going to actually challenge Roe. But the other There are other challenges to the case in the pipeline that could chip away at Roe by adding restrictions to the reasons that women can seek an abortion, for example, and worsen the existing abortion crisis, which I'm not sure is actually, you know, getting enough attention. And I think that one of the things that we need to talk about when we talk about abortion is the fact that in other high-income countries, you know, most of them, France, Denmark, England, Italy, you know, most of these countries that we consider our peers, they fully fund abortion for their residents as part of the national health insurance system. An additional number partially fund abortion, either requiring copay, like in Sweden or Switzerland, or they have some sort of like income limit where they'll pay up to a certain income level. But at the end of the day, taxpayer-funded abortion is actually a very normal practice in other countries. And I think we need to be aware that globally, we're kind of the regressive outlier. And that absolutely goes for abortion. So I've had two abortions. Uh, One was in the United States and one was in Copenhagen. At the patient level, the experiences, they weren't that different. I would say the biggest difference was that, of course, in the U.S., I was greeted by protesters with blown up pictures of fetuses and mad security at this facility that was solely used to provide abortion services. It felt like a fringe event. Um, And of course, the fact that I paid $600 out of pocket for it, that was a huge difference. Whereas, you know, the Danish procedure was, of course, paid by me through my taxes, so free at the point of service. And it took place at a regular OBGYN office as a normalized healthcare service. Uh, No one else knew why I was there. It was anonymous and it felt routine. And that, I think, is about as good as, you know, an abortion experience can be. 
I think the biggest difference though, for me between those two experiences was the context in which I had to make that decision. You know, when I was in the U S the context was that I was uninsured and I had just missed the window to apply on the exchange. I had basically just moved back to the United States from Tokyo. And so there was basically no choice actually. I even called up a local hospital to see what it would cost out of pocket for me to deliver and maternity care and all that. And let's just say it was more than my annual salary is today. <laughs> um, there was no way that for me to see this as a responsible decision, even though you know my husband and I were solidly middle class. And it didn't really matter how I felt about whether I wanted to have a child or not. It wasn't even really a decision. Whereas when I was in Denmark and I found out that I was pregnant, it was a much more complicated decision, which is a good thing because it meant that I had choices. The reason that it was a little bit complicated was that even though I had guaranteed health care to the single payer there, and so would any children that I chose to have, you know, would have that access to health care. And of course, more broadly, it's a society that thinks of child rearing as collective responsibility. And so there are just more resources for parents. But at the same time, I was dealing with a related medical issue that would have made it very difficult for me to go through a pregnancy at that time. But instead of my choice being restricted by my class or my insurance status, I was constrained by something that would have impeded anybody. And it allowed me to make a choice that felt dignified. And it didn't close off the future for me in a way that you know, being uninsured and not knowing what was going to happen in the future in terms of like my insurance status would have. And I think it really hit home for me at that time that that's what reproductive justice means. It means having bodily autonomy. It means being able to have an abortion when that fits your life. It means being able to have children when that fits your life. And, you know, we can't have full bodily autonomy without having a single payer healthcare system that provides the whole range of reproductive services that people will need throughout their lives. If we can put politics aside for a moment, why is it important for women's health that they have access to abortion and other reproductive health services such as contraception? Sure. So I think that people shouldn't have to argue, you know, why they need or want an abortion. I don't think it should be contingent upon the circumstances in which pregnancy occurred. That's what I find a little bit problematic about some of the state level laws that are outlawing abortion, even in the case of rape and incest. And some people are saying, oh my gosh, even in terms of rape, you know, and incest, you know, you're not going to allow people to have an abortion even then. I think if we start arguing about those sorts of conditions, we're going down a path of normalizing restrictions around abortion of pregnancies that happen for other reasons. And I think bodily autonomy requires that any person should be able to access an abortion for whatever reason they have for not wanting to be pregnant. Well, the other thing I've never understood, if life is so precious, I've never understood how anybody who says they want to protect the unborn but isn't also protecting the born. And it seems one of the obvious ways to do that, of course, would be making sure everybody can get access to affordable health care, along with making sure that other basic needs are met, such as food, clothing, and shelter. Do you see a contradiction there also? I see a huge contradiction there. I think that right-wing arguments about 
pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when they sort of collide with these weird moral ideas about the rights of fetuses and versus the rights of the woman who is pregnant. I think that you get this very bizarre philosophy around what life really matters, what life does matter and what life doesn't matter. And it's just wholly inconsistent with a society that really takes care of people. Well, if you really wanted to reduce abortions, you would give people access to forms of contraception. And it has been shown that doing that reduces unplanned pregnancies, which of course reduces abortion. Absolutely. And actually, another thing that we can learn from the rest of the world here is that countries that have national health systems that are financed by taxpayers progressively have lower rates of abortion than we do in the United States, even though those countries do cover abortion as part of the normal catalog of services that are covered by the national health insurance system. And I think that's because, you know, when you give people access to comprehensive health care, they are better able to make choices, and that includes reproductive health choices. Well, from what I've also heard, and I'm not sure if I can put this delicately, but the <laughs> rate of intercourse among these countries, among the U.S. and European countries that we're talking about, is relatively the same, within 1% or 2%. So the question becomes, if it's relatively the same, how come we have a much higher unplanned pregnancy rate? And the only thing that I can figure out is just access to contraception is easier because you can get it without out-of-pocket expenses in their healthcare systems. Yeah, absolutely. That's just part of healthcare, having access to reproductive health services, and that includes contraception. And other countries also don't have restrictions like the ones that you see here around, you know, parental consent to be on certain forms of contraception and all of that. I mean, there's a lot of roadblocks for girls and women who are actually seeking these forms of contraception that don't even happen at the insurance level. They're almost like legislated at the state level. One of the interesting things. So are you familiar with what happened in Colorado when they started offering teens free IUDs? Oh, no, I, I'm not. Well, within eight years, teen pregnancies dropped about 54%, and the teen abortion rate fell about 64%. Colorado gave the IUDs to teens who wanted them, even if they did not have parental consent. That's fantastic. Yeah. It also saved them money and other things overall. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I don't understand. If you're really interested, you know, in abortion, in healthcare, it seems that you have to take these other considerations into account. Absolutely. This just actually reminded me of a friend I know who's a Brit. She had an abortion uh, under the NHS before she went in for the procedure. They offered while they were doing the abortion if she wanted to have one of those IUDs implanted as part of the procedure so that if she wanted to not get pregnant in the future, that they would be able to do that at the same time. Sort of going back to the whole coordinated care thing. And I think that for me personally, an IUD has actually kind of been out of the question because it's extremely expensive without insurance. Whereas under the NHS, they can just offer that to everybody because it just comes again as part of the whole catalog of health services. Yes. And of course, as I mentioned, that would probably save money in the long run for a variety of reasons. 
Although I don't want to make necessarily the saving money argument to providing health care, I think a single-payer system would substantially reduce our national health expenditures. Getting back to single-payer system, is there anything else you'd like to add about the benefits of having a single-payer system? I think that for people um, who get really sick, which many of us you know, will at some point in their lives, there's no doubt in my mind that you would want to be focused entirely on getting better and getting the best treatment that you can versus trying to figure out how to pay your bills. So one of the experiences that I had when I was in Denmark was watching my friend Anne, who was diagnosed with leukemia, go through her treatment under the Danish system. And also at the same time, watching a friend back home, you know, through Facebook and social media, her husband also had cancer. And seeing their experience, of course, through the lens of, you know, social media versus what I was seeing with my friend Anne. So I'll just call her Susan. Her husband, he was diagnosed with some form of cancer, I think bone cancer or something. And they had to actually do what you would expect, a typical GoFundMe to keep up with all the costs for his treatment. And that was on top of what I saw Anne was going through actually firsthand. She actually had a two-year-old child. She had to get help with the child because she couldn't pick her up anymore as she was going through the chemotherapy. But what I did see with Anne's treatment was that there was like such a coordinated level of care for her from the moment that she was diagnosed. You know, she was at her general practitioner's office and she was complaining that she had some bruise on her legs and this weird fatigue. And they did some tests. And then when they came back, they told her, look, you have leukemia and you have an appointment with a doctor at Riggs Hospital, which is like the big research hospital in Copenhagen, in one hour. And not only you know, was all of her treatment paid for fully, but the way that they coordinated it was amazing. For example, she immediately met with a therapist who would be helping her deal with sort of the mental and emotional strain of going of having cancer and then going through all the chemo. And then additionally, for a year after that, she continued to have follow-up therapy to deal with like the trauma of having cancer. And then another thing they did for her was that they put her in a group of people with a similar diagnosis and a similar age range and set up times for them to have like a coping group where they shared experiences and sort of helped each other get through the experience of chemotherapy. And all of her care with her GP and then with the doctors at the hospital was all just, you know, fully coordinated and they were all in contact with each other. And there was never any question about whether or not, you know, when she had complications, which she had many, if they would be covered and she was just admitted to the hospital. I never saw anybody pull out a paper and try to find out if this was covered by her insurance at all. And so I thought that that was just absolutely the way I would want to be taken care of if I ever got sick like that. So you think that's a better system than saying, oh, it's going to cost you this amount of money and you better use GoFundMe and good luck? Yeah, I'm not really sure what the appeal of that kind of system is. (laughs) On a more serious note, I've talked to several doctors and one nurse, and the stories you hear about people trying to afford their chemotherapy are just heart-wrenching, and it just makes me sick, and I find it disgusting. Before we end, is there anything that you'd like to add? 
Well, one thing I would like to add, although I'm not sure if it really segues perfectly with what we were just talking about, but I did want to talk about the fact that I believe that federal funding for abortion in the United States is a really important issue. And I think that the single payer movement needs to come out for it explicitly and lead the way on this conversation because the reproductive rights movement and the single payer movement are intertwined in ways I think that we don't always appreciate. They depend on each other for their success. For example, right now, something like half of women pay for their abortion with private insurance. And of course, this is not great. Every woman should have access to abortion, you know, fully covered by their insurance. And of course, it's poor women and women of color. Those who are most likely to need an abortion are also the ones who face the greatest financial burdens in getting one. But if we were to pair a single payer without fully repealing the Hyde Amendment, you know, the Hyde Amendment, of course, prevents federal funds from being used for abortion treatment, would mean that effectively all women in the country would lose access to insurance coverage for abortion services, which is, of course, not acceptable. So if we tried to pass a bill without explicitly covering abortion, of course, not only would it be politically impossible, it would just be, we would be going backwards, actually. And so like all things single payer, a national health plan is an exercise in solidarity. We're not going to get single payer without including abortion rights. And we won't fulfill abortion rights without a single payer. So it's really got to be everybody in and nobody out. Well, along those lines, Representative Jayapal's bill does include abortion coverage. And it specifically says that it's covered and overrides the Hyde Amendment. And I believe that Senator Sanders' bill does also. So that's a good sign. Yes. Representative Diapol and Senator Sanders' bill are both really strong on abortion. They do repeal the Hyde Amendment, and they do say that comprehensive reproductive health care is covered. They don't explicitly mention the word abortion, which I think is one area we could improve on. But overall, um, I think that this is like a huge step in the right direction for us. Yes. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.